Podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group. Today, we are joined by Jessica Olenberg, managing partner and principal consultant at Olenberg LLC. Jessica is not only an award-winning expert at the intersection of employment law and leadership playbooks, she's also a risk management consultant for us right here at the Star Group. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Well, great to have you. I got to tell you, I've been excited for this conversation for a while. Obviously, I've known you through your work here at the Star Group, and I look forward to introducing you to our podcast listeners here today. Wonderful. Happy to be here, and thank you so much. We love working with your insured clients. What a great group of people. Well, and what a wonderful value add you are to our Star Group family members. They rave about you. They can't say enough wonderful things about the services you provide. So, yeah, it's a real blessing to be working with you. And like I said, very excited to uh, get to know you a little bit better during this episode. Wonderful. So, Jessica, what I'd be interested in is why don't you tell us a little bit about your story as it pertains to your experience with glass ceiling? Happy to do that. Very, very different time co-founding a business in 1983. We weren't talking about the glass ceiling then, and it really wasn't a goal to break the glass ceiling. But at that time, women were definitely competing for jobs. My goal was not to be a feminist per se, but really just to take care of multi-generational family. I have no siblings. My father was amazing, an amazing entrepreneur, manufacturing president, and president of a lot of organizational institutions that specifically dedicated toward business success, employee involvement, etc., and wanted to also pick up the torch and carry it on for him as well. Yeah, and you talk about your father, and I think we all know what a really important role parents play in the development of their children, especially during those formative years. And it sounds like your father was one heck of an entrepreneur. What are one or two life lessons you learned from your father, either personally, professionally, that have really kind of helped make you the, uh, the woman you are today? Family ethic and work ethic were two of the greatest life lessons I learned. And he demonstrated that by being a community leader. He took care of family. He took care of the community. He built a community that would support his family. And he just put others first. But he was also an inventor, a philanthropist, an entertainer, and and so many things. We were using the term human resources and human resource services, which at the time was in textbooks. I was certainly learning about it in the MBA program and reading about some great entrepreneurs who were developing case studies that could not be denied. But it was not mainstream in corporate America, to the point that we were getting phone calls for humane resources, and I need help with my landlord, and where are my food stamps, and I have a cat in the tree. People didn't even know what human resources was, because the more common label was personnel. And that was more of a paraprofessional or clerical role still in many organizations. So our entire business model started out as an invention. And then beyond that, 
I worked very hard to develop the first applicant tracking sophisticated software with behavioral scoring because I couldn't find one on the market. We coined some of the phrases such as direct hire, employment agents. There were employment agencies and there were temp services, but temp services did not view themselves in the placement field. In fact, many of the temp services didn't want you to hire the, the candidates that they would send you. They preferred to keep them on their payroll and churn. So although employment was not in our first suite of services when we first opened, our clients who were using us for everything else in management, employment law, and development of HR and training their internal HR people asked us to do that. So it was a request-based program, which we did for probably half of our existence at HRS. One of the things that I admire about you as well, Jessica, is with all of the stuff you have going on professionally, with all of the I got to imagine stresses that are there every single day, uh, just, just running the courses of the business. You still find time to laugh. I know laughter is important to you. You're a lighthearted person. You have an infectious laugh. Uh, we found that out when I couldn't even introduce you after five <laughs> takes. So at least that was a nice way to, to hear that for myself. Can you tell us a little bit of a, of a story about how laughter has helped you navigate through your career? Well, there are certainly clinical viewpoints, which I, of course, want to go to first. And the first thing that I would want everyone to know is that laughter is key in the workplace. We know that the relaxed mind is a productive mind. And laughter is the best way to get your endorphins going, get those feel-good hormones out there, and get into that relaxed frame of mind. We know that the best ideas are born from a relaxed mind. And while it's true that adrenaline can short-term push us to do some very great things in short periods of time, by and large, it's, it's the relaxed mind that's going to get more done. And when we talk about what can be done, it's the relaxed mind that will do it. We also, with our teachings in leadership and legal compliance and anti-harassment and inclusion, it's important to teach people how to use humor at no one's expense. And that's not always easy to do. So practicing that is important. But there's always something, some silver lining that you can find that helps you get from point A to point B. And not everyone wants to laugh at the dark side of things. So it's also important to be sensitive to that. It's also important to be sensitive to those who find laughter disruptive or disrespectful and respect their boundaries as well. I don't have a lot of boundaries when it comes to laughter because I know at the end of the day, I'm dedicated to doing the right thing and I'm not going to question that about myself. But others have boundaries and have had bad experiences or may have triggers that you really don't want to play with. And that's certainly good advice. Any tips or tricks to how to relax one's mind? Have you seen anything that might work or a couple of best practices that uh, people might want to consider moving forward? I think I found that for many people, the ability to laugh at that which might bother you the most can be very healing. As long as, again, you know your audience and you know that they're on board. 
So some certainly some some good advice, some good things to think about. And yeah, that's just a reminder for everybody. Don't take yourself too seriously. You talk about constant self-improvement. Can you tell us a story about maybe an early time where you noticed the need for self-improvement and uh, and took the action on your end? I would first say that completely agree with you. Learning is lifelong, especially for leaders. If you want people to learn, you better be seen learning. And leadership by example means showing that learning and showing that willingness to learn every day. I don't feel that I have succeeded unless I learn something new every day. Business people need to be getting smarter. I need to be providing value to people who are constantly upping their game. That means I need to always be upping my game as well. When I think back to some of the things in the earlier days that were most challenging and sent up flares for me to learn more about things that I couldn't master, it was understanding motivation. Understanding why people are not self-starters can be very difficult for a self-starter. In any organization, not everyone is a self-starter. So that's a detriment to being a leader if you don't understand why people aren't like you. Being a student of motivation, being a student of behavioral science, being a student of why people think and behave differently than you do is key to leadership. And it's key to understanding how to create the incentives and the keys to success for other people to succeed in whatever they define as success. And you have to learn what those are and truly embrace those and get those. And that takes effort. Do you believe people are genuinely ambitious self-starters or do you believe those individuals maybe are more in the minority? I believe that most people are self-starters in some regard, but it's a unique regard. We're all self-starters in some aspect of our life, but not the same as other people. If, if you compartmentalize that, we each have initiative in different spaces. So as a leader, when we look at motivation and maybe we look at Maslow or ERG or some other theories that might help us explain why some people focus on some motivators rather than others, it it helps that explanation make sense to us. But the long and short of your question is everyone is a self-starter in some capacity, but not everyone, in fact, most people are not self-starters when it comes to business. A lot of business owners, in fact, don't start businesses because they want to create some big juggernaut. They just want freedom and a lifestyle business. So that's a whole different motivation. If somebody listening to this podcast admittedly is not a self-starter when it comes to business, can that be learned? Or is that something really that you're born with and you have or you don't? That would come down to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators. Intrinsic is something that's shaped over time. So we inherently, you and I, are are going to be inherent intrinsic 
self-starters. Others can learn through extrinsic reward. One of the stories about swapping out extrinsic for intrinsic is you go back to the old adage of the organization that has bad attendance, so they start giving pizza parties when they have 100% attendance. At some point, the intrinsic motivation to just show up for your job stops and you need to bribe people with pizza just to show up. One of the things that I really admire about what you've done, Jessica, is you've given back. You've touched a lot of lives. You are a very selfless human being and I think the world is a much better place because you are in this world. And of all the things that you've done, I know you've served on nonprofit boards, uh, but in addition to that, I mean, you're a 25-year junior achievement advisor supporter, a 20-year college high school speaker, a five-plus-year youth athletic coach volunteer. I'm just wondering how you have all this time in the day to do all these things, but it's very admirable that you're giving back, that you're touching lives, and you're helping future generations. Why is it important that you do that? Well, thank you for saying all of that, Paul. I really appreciate that. And to add a little levity, I, I would say anxiety. <laughs> I can't stop anxiety moving. Anxiety can be a powerful motivator. It certainly can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like to be idle. There's always something that can be done. And where does that come from? Is that a, another thing maybe from dad as the restless entrepreneur inventor? Where, where do you think that it restlessness? Abs- it absolutely comes from dad. Dad absolutely was that guy. He he was never president of, of less than five organizations at a time and gave it his all. But we lost him at age 65. We lost him from the workforce close to 10 years before that. And I was the only one who could really pick up the torch. And I loved the example he set. I think there are, I, I meet a lot of people who window dress the effort. They sit on boards. I don't like to sit on boards. If somebody wants me to sit on a board, I will probably say no. If they want me to make an impact for a cause, I'm all in. But I take my time and energy and dedication to things very seriously, and I know that I absolutely get that from my dad. There's no shortage of nonprofits or organizations you could choose from. Why Junior Achievers? Junior Achievement was one of my earliest experiences in the give back realm. And I would specifically go to a story I can tell you. I was still a teen myself. I was in undergrad and I was an advisor for junior achievement when it was held differently. It was run through schools. It was run through private companies, etc. And my class was at-risk youth, 13, 14-year-olds, at-risk, crime-ridden community. And I was given a curriculum, and the curriculum was the old... 70s and 80s model of your class creating a product, a marketing plan, doing everything start to finish, designing what you were going to sell, building it, selling it, doing the books, creating everything to do 
with creating a business. And we had one day that was an unstructured curriculum. We were working with learning stock market and we were working with reflecting on what we had done. And my students who were, again, approximately 14 years old, engaged in a conversation among themselves about the choices they had regarding a life of crime versus a conventional minimum wage job at a fast food restaurant. I was not prepared for this conversation, but it, it, it has moved me to this day, and it was probably 35 years ago. Mom needed an operation was the story from one of these kids. How am I going to get mom her operation by going to work at a fast food chain? But I have an opportunity to work with this gang, commit this crime, steal X items, and get X paycheck. I can get mom her operation. What do I do? It was a very compelling conversation, and you really start to learn also what motivates people and how they make choices and how they get to where they are. And I listened to them with with unconditional positive regard and active listening. We talked it through. They finally understood, what if mom needs more after the operation and you're in jail? Then what? And the child decided against a life of crime, but came to his own conclusion because he was respected in his thoughts and ideas. He was allowed to go any place he wanted to with that discussion and wasn't judged. Well, what a powerful story that is. And for people to wonder if organizations like this make a difference, if organizations like this play a significant role in people's lives. I think that story right there is definitive, a testament to to just how powerful it is. In one sentence, the ultimate key to success is defining your own version of success, knowing what that looks like and setting benchmarks for yourself so that you know when you achieve it. And when you go through roadblocks, you keep your eyes open so you know what you've achieved. Well, there you have it, boys and girls, only on the Beyond the Known podcast are you going to get wonderful advice like that from a wonderful person like Jessica Olenberg. Jessica, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. I learned a ton. I know our listeners did as well, and uh, I hope you enjoyed your time on our program here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. I have so much respect for what you do and this podcast and what your group does, the Star Group and all the insured clients and it's just a great group to be involved with because I know everybody here is just top, top tier, top shelf, top quality. Well, that's a lot of tops. So we're going to, it's going to be hard to top that many tops. So with that being <laughs> said, we're going to sail off into the sunset here. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S T A R group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.